I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Our Middle Tennessee weather is always full of surprises. Remember those uncommonly warm days of winter we had this past season? Well, those were actually early days of spring. It's why you've seen early violets and buttercups popping up in your yards. Nashville's own acclaimed writer and columnist, Margaret Rankle, tackles this in her latest op-ed in the New York Times. And later this hour, we'll bring you a rebroadcast of our 2022 interview with her. But first, we've got some bittersweet news. Today is WPLN reporter Ambriel Crutchfield's last day here at Nashville Public Radio. I know. For three years, Ambriel has been WPLN's Metro reporter. She's brought insight and thoughtfulness to a host of important issues facing Nashville, especially high housing costs, gentrification, and inequity. Before she leaves, she's going to sit down with us one last time. Ambriel, welcome to This is Nashville. Well, hello there. Hi. <laughs> Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. <laughs> Wonderful. This is beautiful. Now, you know, we've known each other for quite some time now. In fact, one of my early field outings was with you when we took a ride on the Nolensville Pike WeGo bus. You took the time to help me learn about your hometown. And for that, I really am grateful, truly. Now, since that time, we've had countless conversations about journalism, our work, the present moment for our country, and life in general. Now, tell me, how will you take the lessons that you've learned from working here and apply them to your path forward? Wow, so sentimental. <laughs> um, I think that I'll, I would say I want to be more empathetic and just be like a little bit more fair and listening to people. I think that's the great thing about being a journalist, especially in my 20s, is like it's kind of informing how I am as far as putting myself out there and asking questions and trying to understand different people's perspectives. Um, it also, <laughs> in like kind of funny ways, helps me like when I'm just walking around places, like how I experience the environment or maybe interpret stuff. Like I'll never forget when I went to Paris, I was like, oh, this is what all the transit people that I've been reporting on for all these years have been saying. Like we are totally behind. Maybe all just need to take a little road trip, <laughs> a flight to Europe. So, <laughs> but yeah, I think in all those kind of ways, like how I ask questions and letting other people be experts in different ways and learning from them. Definitely picking that up from the job. Okay, so let's talk about a story that aired this week, you know, alternate ending. Mm -hmm. This was deeply personal for you. Let's play a little piece of that. How is your dad currently showing you to be generous and to share without bringing it up to people? Oh, by just being from your heart, just loving from your heart. Give what you want to somebody. And you keep what you think you might not want for yourself. That's what he taught us. Give what we like for ourselves to the next person and keep the other for ourselves because it was abundant, you know, and it, evidently it must have been going to keep coming. So it was nice. And we never spoke about what we saw that person had on. That is my great aunt Anita. It's kind of funny. We were listening to it as a family. <laughs> and my uncle was like, "You didn't. We weren't supposed to speak on it, but you are now." <laughs> <laughs> the family always lets you remember, don't yeah, they? Yeah. Well, well, tell us how that story came to be. Yeah. Um, well, okay. When I I am from Nashville, I never planned to return until I got this job. 
And when I came back, I'm like, okay, well, I have audio skills. I should put them to use in doing oral history because my Aunt Nita is the oldest person on my maternal side. That was in the back of my head. But then I started reporting on displacement and started kind of trying to understand, like, why does place matter to us as people? Uh, because I've seen so many people on their last day, whether they were being evicted or being displaced and really trying to, even if they didn't like where they live, trying to grasp what they were going to do next. So I read the book Root Shock, which kind of snowballed and helped me learn how systems have operated to disrupt community and the impact that has on our health and how we interact with each other today. Mm. Um, so it's, yeah, it just was like a continual snowball. I took Lord, Professor LaRotha Williams class and learned about Black Nashville's history. And he raised a lot of important questions like, why are a lot of the stories of Black people that we recognize they're affluent black people, or in a lot of cases, they're not from here, like a Diane Nash. And so it's like, what are we missing when we don't, you know, memorialize and think of the quote unquote everyday person, which mm. are the people that make up the city? Mm -hmm. You went deep on this issue with Displaced, which was a series on the river chase development in East Nashville. Tell us more about what the residents there were experiencing and why you felt it was so important to tell that story. Yeah. So one, I being from Nashville, I've driven past or what used to be River Chase my whole life. They're the colorful. Well, they were the colorful apartments uh, when you were passing by downtown. And I was just interested. I mean, once we started digging into the records and everything, of just how long it had taken for the apartments to deteriorate and how MDHA was aware of it, but how our system didn't, didn't provide them any real protections to do anything about it. I mean, it was, if I remember correctly, down to like, either you stay and like you can use your voucher, but if your apartment is condemned, then it's like on you to find a new place or you need to pay out of pocket for a subpar living condition. Mm. Like those are just crazy options. So. That was really interesting to me, but I also was curious of like, what does this part of town, especially where it is close to where the Titan Stadium is um, and leading over to Dickerson Pike, which is changing so much, like what does this tell us about where the city is heading? Uh, what does this tell us about protection for renters, specifically those using like housing vouchers or just paying lower rents in general? Let's hear a little bit from that series. Her family's clothes spill out of anything that'll hold them. A bassinet, trash bags, plastic containers. She doesn't use her closet, and we'll get to why later. When talking to Holland, only one thing makes her perk up with pride, and she pulls back the brown curtain from her window to show me. You see that? Oh, okay. Wow. Dang, you do have a good view. Yes. A beautiful, beautiful view. We can see the Batman building, the Titan Stadium, and tons of cranes in the sky. A peek into how redevelopment is redefining the city. I look out my window and see the view that people will pay thousands to see, which they will get that same opportunity eventually. What lesson do you think Nashvilleians should take away from your reporting on River Chase? Yeah, I think it's similar to um, what I wanted people to take away from alternate ending. It's just like, okay, we understand that Tennessee is more um, lenient or on the side of landlords or property owners and not on the side of renters. And people at River Trace, they knew that, like, they didn't like the conditions they were in and they knew this day was coming. Um, so I wonder, I guess the thing that sticks out to me is like, what are we going to do as community members to protect each other? 
and to be of support to each other if our laws are set up in a way that does not favor renters, which majority of people in Nashville are. Mm -hmm. So the question on a lot of people's minds is going to be, where are you off to next? But I'm going to rephrase that for you. Okay. The show's live. What do you want from your next venture? Oh, what do I want? I want to figure out how to give to whatever my definition of community is. I'm still defining that for myself, but figuring out my small way of like giving to people on a day to day. I originally, it's kind of funny when I got into journalism, I did it at Hillsborough high school and that's how I even learned about like the media track and connecting communities and like talking to people was the big reason why I got into it. And while I do think it is helpful, of course, to have information and to be connecting with people one-on-one reporting, I'm interested in ways to, like, I don't know, give back in a different kind of way. Mm-hmm. Ambrielle Crutchfield is WPLN's Metro reporter. Her last day on staff is today, and we appreciate her sharing some of her thoughts in an exit interview. Ambrielle, thank you so much. I'm going to miss you big time. Oh, thanks. I'll miss you, too. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of our 2022 interview with Nashville-based author and New York Times columnist Margaret Rankle. Don't go away. This is Nashville. And this is Nashville. As of Monday, spring is officially here. The cherry trees are blossoming and Middle Tennessee wildlife is popping off all around us. So today we're going to spend some time exploring our wildlife and these cycles of nature with New York Times columnist Margaret Rankle. She's the author of Late Migrations, A Natural History of Love and Loss. We first spoke to Margaret last year around this time. It's a lighthearted springtime conversation that just never gets old. Enjoy. Margaret Rankle, welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks so much for having me, Khalil. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for being here. Okay, so spring is upon us, and here in Middle Tennessee, that means new blooms and grasses turning green. But this season also brings the threat of tornadoes. What can we expect? I think the the understanding of Tornado Alley as being really a Midwestern phenomenon is shifting in the in the new climate. And, you know, we aren't officially in a tornado alley, but it's certainly starting to seem like that. Um, so a lot of weather ups and downs. That's actually what we want. The longer the spring spreads out the more beautiful it is. Redbud trees and dogwoods and so many little spring wildflowers. If you go for a walk at Radnor Lake or you go for a walk at Warner Parks or Shelby Bottoms or any of the so many greenways we have in Nashville, you'll just see something different every single day. You know, I moved here from the Southwest where it's not very green. And (laughs) what I've noticed here is like the rapid rate of growth and the quick emergence of wildlife that loves the sun. This place here, Middle Tennessee in Nashville, is teeming with life. There is life in the desert, but you you have to know where to look. Here, it's all around 
and a little bit intimidating, I might add. You know, what's your, <laughs> what's your recommendation for taking it all in? Get, just get out there in it. I think we have such a tendency in our, in our current age to think that to experience nature, you have to get into a car and drive to it. Hmm. And that's just not true. It's not true even if you live in the very heart of the concrete jungle. It's there's life everywhere. You just have to pay attention. And frankly, you have to put your phone down or at least keep it on the camera setting and pull it out when you see something wonderful because it's especially in springtime. This is it's kind of an exuberance that you don't see any other time of the year, even though Every day is different in, in every time of the year. In spring, the birds are waking up after being so quiet all winter. It takes a lot of energy to sing if you're a songbird. And in the winter, you need that energy to, you need to conserve that energy to keep warm. But in the spring, they're all courting each other and building nests. And the other animals are peeking out of the burrows where they spent the winter, the ones that, that sleep all winter long. It's just a wonderful time to remember that in surprising ways, life goes on. You touched on something I wanted to talk about, you know, the distractions of the modern existence that many of us in this world are in. We're looking at our screens for most of the day, whether it's in our hands, on our desks or stands. We even, a lot of us even get our books through a Kindle screen. What are we missing when we get sucked into this online world? Well, I think we have to remember that the the, the purveyors of the online world are monetarily invested in keeping us there. They're trying to make us stay on Twitter. They're trying to make us stay on TikTok. And, um, and I think most people are, especially most Southerners, are cussed enough to think, I'm not going to let that happen if they if they think about what's happening. It is a slower world. You know, one of one of the the things about the natural world is it it doesn't perform on demand. If your brain has been trained to operate at a certain speed, a really fast pace, um, to have a lot of bells and whistles, it's there's a there's an early stage of paying attention if you aren't in the habit of doing that, where the natural world might seem boring, but it is so, it's so comforting when you get the knack of it to, to sit still or to take your earbuds out when you're walking and just listen, um, that it becomes very quickly self-reinforcing, I think. There is an essay in your book, Late Migrations, called Secret. In it, you write about a really large colony of honeybees that have been living in a fallen tree in your neighborhood. Tell me, what, what did you take away from that experience? You know, it, it, it actually hadn't fallen um, for most of the time it was there. It was, a, it was a mostly dead tree that was still standing. And um, a, a storm blew through in the night and knocked that tree down. Uh, and when it fell, it dislodged a, a really gigantic honeybee hive. And it just struck me that I had been walking by that tree, pushing, walking the dog, pushing my babies and strollers, 
later teaching them to ride their bikes. I mean, for a couple of decades. When the tree fell, the homeowner contacted the Tennessee Beekeepers Association and got somebody to come out. Um, because, of course, bees are just incredibly valuable. And that person put down a, 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 a fabricated hive, a store-bought hive, and moved the queen, found the queen and moved the queen to the new hive to try to persuade all the, the honeybees to, to join her. And he said that hive had been there for at least a couple of decades and maybe longer. Wow. And... I had no idea. And I'm a fairly observant person, but those bees had been there living among us for a really long, long time. Well, did you know right away that this is something you were going to write about? I almost never know right away what I'm going to write about. I'm a slow thinker. I have to ponder things. I have to sleep on them and live with them and Usually something else will happen that will remind me of the thing. And then I'll think, oh, why didn't I think of that before now? Did you, did you, did you develop this patience and this, this, this train of thought through like what you were saying earlier, like taking our time to slow down and to be with nature? Do you feel like your writing process is one with nature where it develops over time? It naturally evolves and grows? I like the way you think of it better than the way I think of it, <laughs> because I tend to think of it as sort of um, just being a little tiny bit slow on the uptake. Um, but uh, I do think my age helps. I'm, I turned 60 back in the fall, and so I didn't grow up with quite so many bells and whistles. I was uh, I recently watched um, the new documentary on Ricky and Lucy. And I remember thinking how that drove my mother crazy that we could watch I Love Lucy three times a day if we wanted to in the summer, because there really wasn't anything else, even much for children to watch, um, you know, apart from PBS and first thing in the morning. So um, I didn't have quite as many distractions. And, and I think that maybe helped uh, set my mind in a, in, on a different speed. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour with award-winning author and New York Times columnist, Margaret Rankle. So we were just kind of talking about like pacing and how even in our city neighborhoods, there can be this natural world around us. Some of us take camping trips or hikes and immerse ourselves into nature but like you said, you know, in your book, Late Migrations, it really shows how we can find abundance in the nature right in our backyards or in the middle of the concrete jungle if we know where to look. So, you know, I, and that's something I can relate to. I lived in Los Angeles for a long time and lived in Hollywood in the middle of probably one of the greatest concrete jungles on the planet. And I would look up from time to time and I would see a hawk or a falcon kind of hanging out, doing its thing on a telephone pole. That taught me to really pay attention. Tell me about your, your kids. When you were raising your kids, how did you teach them to observe nature and to see things? Honestly, I think they taught me more than I taught them. I mean, one of the things about having young children is that it, it kind of gives you a, a little a window straight into your own past because things that you had forgotten, hadn't thought about in years, 
are suddenly the things your children are doing. And, and then that it becomes a self-reinforcing thing as well. You, um, my oldest had this just, he was born with this gift to, he could, even as a toddler still wearing diapers, he could squat on his little fat legs and, and watch an anthill for a, a surprising amount of time. Hmm. And, poke around in mud puddles. And, and that would remind me of my brother and me playing in creeks and mud puddles. And then I would think about tadpoles we had collected and, and watched turned into toads. And then I'd help my kids collect tadpoles and we could watch them turn into toads in a bucket. You know, children are just naturally fascinated with the natural world. They don't know what they should and shouldn't be interested in. So everything is interesting to them. Things that we might overlook or just dismiss as unimportant. A small child doesn't know it's unimportant. You mentioned storms a little earlier. Southerners seem to have a real affection for stormy weather, which reminds me of one of your essays from Late Migrations, In the Storm, Safe from the Storm. Margaret, will you read that for us? Oh, I'd be happy to. Wonderful. I, I really like this one. It's such a happy memory I have of my father. In the storm, safe from the storm, Lower Alabama, 1965. At my grandparents' house in the country, we live on the front porch where the ceiling fan blows the bugs away and stirs the steaming air into something passing for a breeze. At home in town, we are very modern and have no porch at all. There's a concrete stoop, but only the barest overhang to cover it. Hardly anything to keep away the rain or the blistering sun. When a storm comes, my father sets his chair right in the doorway, straddling the jam. I love the storms. If I'm asleep, he lifts me up and carries me through the dark house to sit with him in the doorway and listen to the wind and the thunder. The rain comes and I feel it with the tips of my toes, but they are the only parts of me that get wet, for I have drawn my knees up to my chest under my nightgown, and my father has unbuttoned his corduroy jacket and pulled it around me and wrapped his arms around me too. I lean into him. I feel the heat from his body and the cool rain from the world, both at once. Oh, thank you. That time you shared with your father as storm watchers gives a glimpse into the bond you two had. What is it about those times in the storms that you cherish most? It's, you know, it was, I guess it was just that something was happening you know at the time i was uh, at, at the age i was in 1965 we were living in a really small town and um it just it was extravagant and grand and beautiful and a little bit scary not so scary to a small child wrapped in her father's arms because it hadn't dawned on me that anything bad could ever happen to me in his presence so I just think, oh, it's hard not to respond to that magnificence. I mean, how could you not just marvel at how grand and big the world is, especially if you're very small? 
Thanks for tuning in for this rebroadcast of our 2022 interview with Nashville-based author and columnist Margaret Rankle. So don't go away. This is Nashville. Colonna, and this is Nashville. My guest this hour is New York Times columnist and acclaimed author Margaret Rankle. She's the author of Late Migrations. We first interviewed her last year around this time after she received a Penn America Literary Award for her latest book, Graceland at Last, Notes on Hope and Heartache from the American South. We'll pick back up where we left off. Margaret, before the break, we were talking about your relationship with the wilderness and how, you know, the wilderness and nature has changed over time and you're changing with it. I want to ask you, how has climate change affected the way you think about the natural world? Just in terms of of my own little half acre yard, we've lived in this house for 27 years and the the changes are visible it's not uh of course entirely clear that those changes are linked to climate change but we i know enough from reading to know that the fact that there are fewer honeybees the fact that there are fewer of every kind of insect where it is in part related to climate change it's in part related to pesticides it's in part related to um to the destruction of ecosystem. Um, it's in part related to the kind of plants that are in style right now. I mean, when people hire landscapers in Nashville, if they you know, have built a new house or there's a new um, office building going up, they put in generally plants that come to us from Asia. Mm. Um, they put in crepe myrtles and they put in um, you know, flowering plums and flowering pears and, our native uh, insects are not evolved to recognize those flowers as food sources. And when the insects leave or die, the birds also leave or die. Um, and, and that's true right on down the food chain. So um, it's, it's impossible not to notice those changes. Um, I have a whole bunch of bird feeders up in my yard, like a a kind of an embarrassing amount of bird feeders. <laughs> and there's just not uh, nearly as many of our local residents um, taking part and, and many, many fewer migrants passing through during the songbird migration. You know, you wrote in one of your books, you have an essay that's called The Things That I Knew at Six. And I, I may get the get it wrong, but I love what you were pointing out. You're like a flower that is grown in the garden is beautiful. The f- same flower that happens to grow randomly in a field or in concrete is considered a weed and is pulled. And then, you know, thinking about like these flowers, weeds that grow naturally here and they're not being cultivated. They're not being proliferated here by folks in these new developments. It kind of... To me, it just feels like it's being part of what's natural here is being taken away for this new idea of what is beautiful. How does that hit you? 
I think that's that's it exactly. It's um, some of some questions of biodiversity loss are linked to completely understandable conflicts, like people have to eat. So we have to have agriculture. And when we say, for example, that, you know, all produce should be organic, that's a little bit unrealistic in terms of feeding people, hmm. especially people who can't afford to pay for organic produce. So I'm, I'm probably going to take a hit on Twitter for that comment, but there are conflicts that um, are difficult to resolve when they come, when there are conflicts between what the natural world needs and what human beings need. But the question of flowers, <laughs> that's not complicated. We don't have to have crepe myrtles. People could choose to plant service berry trees instead. They've just, in general, never even heard of service berry trees. It's just what's in fashion right now. And what's in fashion and has been for some time now, um, decades, is a green, unvariegated lawn of grass. And it's flowers with a um, mulch around the base separated from one another um, to set off the flower. And, and that's just not how nature works. If you want it's amazing what you can do in your own little bitty yard or on your own city balcony if you plant flowers that the that the the insects recognize flowers that evolved to live in our climate even though the climate is changing they those flowers do better i want to switch up a little bit and talk about some of the collective issues that we all face I mean, a lot of us can feel helpless and hopeless in the face of these gigantic problems. Your work really seems to grapple with the tension between despair and hope. Talk to me about that. How do you balance those? I guess I spend almost all my solitary time trying to do that very thing. Hmm. Uh, it is so easy to tip over into despair. It is so easy with a new headline that says climate change is advancing at a faster pace than we predicted, or that um, there, there are fewer songbirds that survived last year's drought or this winter's cold. It's, um, it's so easy to fall into despair about even just the human state, that people in our families who aren't speaking to us because we voted for a different political candidate. What I generally have found just in life is that when the macrocosm is, is hard to bear, focusing in on the microcosm usually helps. I do still take an immense amount of pleasure and hope from the bluebirds building a nest in the nest box in my yard or for the spring beauties poking up through the leaves um, left over from last fall. It's, it, it's hard not to feel your heart lifting in the presence of new life and extravagant beauty and I don't think that it's wrong to do that. I know that there's a certain cohort online that considers hope to be a fool's errand, but I, but I don't see how we survive without it. I don't see how we can keep up the fight for a better 
um, community or a better planet if we don't look closely at the things that give us hope. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour with acclaimed author and columnist Margaret Rankle. I'd love for you to read another essay from your book, Late Migrations. It's called Be a Weed. <laughs> okay. Be a weed. <laughs> Sometimes when I haven't slept or the news of the world already bad suddenly becomes much worse. The weight of belonging here is a heaviness I can't shake. But then I think of the glister of a particular morning in springtime. I think of standing in the sunshine and watering the butterfly garden, which is mostly cultivated weeds punctuated by the uncultivated kind that come back despite my pinching and tugging. I think of the caterpillars on the milkweed plants unperturbed by the overspray and the resident red-tailed hawk gliding overhead, chased by a mockingbird and three angry crows, and the bluebird standing on top of the nest box, protecting his mate who is inside laying an egg. I think of that morning, not even a morning, not even an hour, and I say to myself, be an egg. Be a mockingbird. Be a weed. Be a weed. Thank you so much for sharing that. Tell me, what led you to write that essay? That's actually a pretty accurate description of an actual morning. <laughs> when um, a few years ago, this is later in the spring than 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 now. There, the most of my most of the flowers in my butterfly garden are still sleeping. They're just be, just just beginning to poke out of the dirt. Long, long way from blooming, and of course, we're a long way from having butterflies um, yet. But that's exactly what happened. It was a a hard news day. I don't remember what happened, but it was a hard news day, and yet the world was going on. Mm -hmm. The mantra of meditation, of being a weed, a reminder to not let yourself get paralyzed or stuck with despair, but to live. That's what you intended. Am I off with that? No, you're. That's you ought to write a thesis. That's exactly it. Okay. You know the thing about the thing about weeds um, that people find so annoying is that they are absolutely um, indefatigable. They are always looking for the crack in the pavement, or the the little tiny bit where the where the um, homeowner forgot to spray, and they'll pop right up. And 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 the birds carry them. The birds carry them, and you know when when a bird eats a, a weed seed and then perches on it on a power line and poops that often um, there will be there'll be seeds that will land on fertile ground. I had most of the a lot of my favorite flowers in this yard appeared because they 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 were seeds that rode in on a wild animal's back or um, in a bird's digestive tract and I look for them every year. Um, now they're well established. I, it's there. It's a wonderful gift. I'll, often all you have to do to have a wildlife friendly yard is just to stop doing what you have been doing and let them and, and let nature take its course. Nature definitely knows what it's doing. 
<laughs> That's one thing I. If we'll heard. just get out of the way, it does. Yeah, yes. yeah. You know, you're you're writing about grief. It feels so personal and powerful. I imagine it's taken a lot of time and care to process your own grief and find that place for the healing that our natural world brings. Tell me about that. It, it's one of the things I remember one time when I was in high school and I can't remember what I, what I, how this subject came up, but I said very confidently to my father, well, n nothing tragic is going to happen to me. I think when you're young, you think, you know, you feel impervious if, if you're lucky enough to grow up in, in with people who love you and support you. But he just shook his head and he said, I hope you're right about that, but I don't think you will be. We all have tragedies in our lives. We all face terrible, terrible fears. And, um, and some of those fears are going to come to pass. It's not irrational to feel that way. And, and these days, the, the world itself, we have fears for. We have, we, 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 we're watching a war in which a nuclear armed, you know, Russia is invading a, a country that posed no threat to it. And it's hard not to feel terrified about all of those things. But one of the things that happens when you come out on the backside of a tragedy, when you somehow emerge from a terrible thing, it's not that you've moved on, but you've learned something. You know, you've learned that you can get through these things. I think that's one of maybe one of the reasons the pandemic has been especially hard for young people is that they don't have enough years yet to understand that they can come out on the other side because they've done it before uh, of something terrible. Margaret Rankel is an acclaimed author and New York Times columnist. Margaret, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure and an honor. It's been such a pleasure talking with you, Khalil. Thank you for having me. Oh, will you come back on the show? Absolutely. Wonderful. Wonderful. We will make the date. Thanks for tuning in for this rebroadcast of our 2022 interview with Nashville's own Margaret Rankel, acclaimed author and New York Times columnist. If you enjoyed today's episode or any episode this week, don't forget to show your support for our show. It's our spring fun drive. Give now at WPLN.org. And thank you. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tutho. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekolona. We'll see you Monday, everybody, and be good to each other. <laughs>